As many of you know, I am a bit of a last-minute person, shall we say. So it really annoyed me back, way back in October when I went shopping and started seeing Christmas decorations in the shops already. I hate it because it gives me this uneasy feeling that maybe I'm kind of, you know, I should be getting ready for Christmas even though it's three months away. Maybe everyone else has actually started buying presents and stuff and I'm the only one who hasn't. But now that we're getting towards the end of November, even for me it's time to, well, at least start thinking about some things to do with Christmas. So last week we were chatting with the neighbours about um, when and where we're having our street Christmas party. We've started putting together the program for carols, uh, for our church carol night, and I have even bought one Christmas present already, so that's very early for me. But no matter how many preparations you make beforehand, there's always things that need to be done at the last minute, aren't there? Not because you've kind of forgotten about them, but because they need to be done at the last minute like picking up the Christmas ham, uh, making the salad the day before or the morning so that it's fresh, checking the camera battery is all charged up, and so on. That's the nature of preparation. Some things can be done months ahead. Some things need to be done right at the last minute. Now, Mark's Gospel really has been one big preparation for one big event. That event that the whole of Mark's Gospel has been leading for, as we've been looking at it over the last year, is the death of Jesus, where he will die to take away sin and then he will rise again. That's what we've been heading towards. Now today in Mark 14, we are in the last few moments. A couple of days before Jesus' death, and in this chapter there are three final preparations. In Mark 14, firstly, Jesus is anointed for his death. That's what we're looking at this morning. Then he eats his last meal, the Lord's Supper, with his disciples. We're looking at that next week. And then finally he prays to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what we're looking at in two weeks' time. Three final things before Jesus is betrayed, arrested, tried and killed. So this morning, Jesus' anointing. And we just heard it read, but let's have a look at it again. Mark 14 and verse 1. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. The preparations here, did you notice, are being done by Jesus' enemies. The Jewish leaders, they want to kill Jesus. But do you see the problem they have? There's a bit of a spanner in the works of their preparations Jesus is so popular among people that they're worried about what the response might be. It's two days before the Passover. Jerusalem is overflowing with people. Think of Christmas, uh, sorry, uh, Sydney on New Year's Eve or something like that. People are everywhere and the Jewish leaders are worried that if they do anything while the, the crowds are there and while Jesus is so popular with the crowds, there might be a riot, verse 2. And so they're scratching their heads. They're trying to work out a sly way, we're told, to arrest Jesus. This has got to be done quietly. This has got to be done quickly. They don't have to think too hard, though, because their problem is solved down in verse 10 by one of Jesus' own disciples. Verse 10, very dark verse. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. 
They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportune time to hand Jesus over. What a terrible thing to happen. Although Mark has warned us this was coming. Way back in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus went up on the mountain and picked 12 people and called them to himself, way back then Mark told us that Judas Iscariot was the one who would betray him. And all through Mark's gospel there's kind of been that tension, hasn't there? Judas is there driving out demons like the other disciples. Judas goes out with the 12 preaching. Judas is there in the boat when Jesus calms the storm. He's there collecting up the baskets when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Mark has warned us about this. Judas has been there all the way, but it doesn't make it any easier when it happens. It's unthinkable that Judas could witness all that, be a part of all that, and yet turn against Jesus. But that's exactly what he does. And it's exactly the break that Jesus' enemies are looking for. Verse 11, they're very happy. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give Judas money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. Now this little section that we're looking at this morning, that's how it starts and ends. It starts with Jesus' enemies looking for a way to arrest him quietly. And then it ends with Judas plotting with them how he might hand Jesus over to them. It starts and ends with preparations to kill Jesus. But sandwiched between those two bookends, Mark tells us of this incident where a woman anoints Jesus with oil. Now it's very interesting that Mark puts it right in here between uh, verse 1 and verse 10 because John's Gospel tells us that this incident actually happened a few days earlier when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Now if Mark was putting it in order, he would have put this back in chapter 11. But he's just dropped it right in here with little reference at the start about when it happened. See verse 3? While he was in Bethany. In other words, this happened a few days earlier, but Mark is putting it in here deliberately to make a contrast so that we can't miss it. Judas, who betrays Jesus for money. And now we meet a woman who does the exact opposite. She gives a gift worth a huge amount of money to Jesus. Verse 3. And and just as I read this, pay attention to what an extravagant gift this is. Verse 3. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper. Don't get this confused with the Luke 747. That's a different Simon. There's oil, there's Simon, but everything else is different. It's a different event. Reclining in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. See what an extravagant gift this is, how over the top this is. He says it's a jar of very expensive perfume. He says it's made of pure nard, a very fragrant, expensive oil. Verse 5 says that this jar of nard was worth a year's wages for a labourer. What's a year's labour today for a labourer? A year's wages, $30,000, $40,000, kind of the base wage. That much perfume. Now, I've only ever bought perfume for Jill once. 
who was in the duty-free shop at the airport. It was 40 or $50, and I tell you, that was expensive. <laughs> that was a lot. I checked out during the week. The most expensive perfume you can buy in David Jones is $400 a bottle. That's about a week's wage. I'm sure if you looked around, you could find perfume more expensive than that. This bottle of perfume, though, is worth a year's wages. How much do you earn in a year? Imagine spending that on a bottle of perfume. How can perfume be worth that much? I'd be too scared to use it. But this woman isn't, is, is she? She could have just poured a few drops on Jesus. They say that the, the, the strength of nard is kind of like lavender oil, you know? One drop and the room just fills with it. Can you imagine having a bottle of that poured on your head? I'm surprised Jesus could breathe. <laughs> but she pours the entire jar over him. A year's wages worth. Mark says it's an alabaster jar. They were made especially for storing perfumes and strong expensive liquids. So they had a little ledge around the top to catch the drips and they had a long narrow neck and the idea is when you took the piece of cloth out the top you could gently pour the perfume out drop by drop through the thin neck. So a jar like this it might last for years it might be handed down from woman mother to daughter generation to generation. But this woman doesn't pour it out drop by drop she smashes the top of the jar off so that she can pour the entire bottle over Jesus. So no wonder people are shocked, even angry, verse 4. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Now before you, you know, get too harsh on the spectators here, we're having some fireworks at Christmas again, I'm happy to announce. How would you feel that if you discovered in this month's management matters that the budget for the fireworks this year was $40,000? That's not, it's $500, but I'd, imagine if it was $40,000 on five minutes worth of fireworks. There'd be an uproar, wouldn't there? There'd be letters to the Committee of Management. Why didn't we spend the money on compassion? Why not support 10, uh, you know, 10 missionaries for $4,000? $40,000 up in a puff of smoke. That's the kind of thing that's happening here. A ridiculous amount of perfume being poured over by Jesus, wasted in an instant. And the people are angry. This money could have been used in lots of good ways to help people. And logically they're right. It's a complete waste of money. Think about the people that it could have helped. It's extravagant. There's no doubt about it. But Jesus says it's totally appropriate. And he tells us why in verse 6. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you'll not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. See, this gift is appropriate despite the opulence of it because of who it has been given to. 
Jesus doesn't deny how much it's worth. He doesn't deny that the money could have been given to the poor. What he says is, forget the poor. You'll always have the poor. At this moment in time, just before my death, this is more important than the poor. That, that response is almost offensive, isn't it? I'm more important than starving, dying poor people. What a shocker of a thing to say. Verse 7, the poor you'll always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. For Jesus, $40,000 worth of perfume poured over his head is not wasted at all. In fact, this woman has done a beautiful thing because she's understood who Jesus is. Verse 8 says, she did what she could. Now that phrase is almost identical to the one we saw a few months ago now, back in Mark 12, where Jesus is watching that poor widow put two tiny coins into the offering box. That's a very small gift compared to this one. But Jesus said the widow gave what she could. She gave her last two coins, everything she had. That's why it was so valuable. And here it's the same phrase, this woman did what she could. She gave the most precious thing she had, her most valuable thing, not two gold coins, but her alabaster jar of perfume. I'm not sure what was going on in her head as she kind of did this. Did she even know that she was anointing Jesus for his death? Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. Mark doesn't tell us. But Jesus says her offering has served its purpose. Verse 8, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. It turns out she's given Jesus the perfect gift. It was uh, our son Ben's birthday during the week. He turned 12. And so we bought him a Swiss Army pocket knife. I had one when I was little. thought it would be about time for him to have one. Let me tell you, it was the perfect present. He sat there looking at it, opening one knife, closing it, opening the scissors, closing it, pulling out the tweezers, putting them back in again. Isn't there something good when you give someone a present and it's just the right thing to give them? That's what this woman's done here. And it was just the right thing because it was everything that she had. And it's become part of the plans and purposes of God. Her gift has become the anointing oil for the Son of God who came in the flesh to die for sin. So there's something very big going on here that she's caught up in. Verse 9, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached... Throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Jesus now looks here forward, beyond his death and resurrection, to a time when the gospel, the good news about his death and resurrection, will be preached to all the world. And when this good news goes out to all the world, Jesus says the story of this woman will be told. And here we are in Dubbo, 13,000 kilometres from Jerusalem, hearing the good news about Jesus. And it's coming true, isn't it? We're also hearing about this woman. And as we hear about this woman, it comes as a challenge, doesn't it? Because this woman models for us a good, appropriate response to Jesus. She gives her everything for Jesus. 
And she doesn't even know fully what lies ahead for Jesus. Here we are on the other side of his death and resurrection. We know the incredible price that he paid for us on the cross. What will your response be? Who are you like in this story? Are you like Judas, using Jesus to get what you want? Or are you like this woman, giving up what you want for Jesus? Now, I mean, if you put the question as bluntly as that, no one's going to put up their hand and say, well, I'm like Judas, are they? But what does it mean for you to follow Jesus? Does, does it mean that you're giving your everything, your most important things, to follow Jesus? Are you giving up anything to follow Jesus? Or do you follow Jesus because it will give you a nice circle of friends? Or, or are you hanging in with Jesus because you hope maybe it might save your marriage? Or do you come to church because you think it might give your children a better chance of growing up good and turning out all right if they've got some good friends and you take them to church? See the point? I think that's how a lot of people think. They already have their goals and ambitions formulated and when they, became a when they become a Christian, nothing changes. Worse than that, they think that Jesus is going to kind of come on board and help them out. That's exactly what's going on in Judas's heart. Where following Jesus is great when it means preaching and driving out demons and picking up the leftover bread and being in the boat. But as soon as it gets hard work, Judas, Judas takes the money and he goes. And Mark puts Judas here because that's not what Mark wants us to be like. And he puts the woman here because that's what he wants us to be like. Jesus is worthy of our best, not our leftovers. I was talking to a young guy from morning church during the week and he was telling me of an ambition he has. He's a young builder and he wants to one day be able to build a house and give it away to someone for the sake of Jesus. What an ambition to have. That's the kind of ambition that God will take and do wonderful things with. What do you have that you can use in the service of Jesus? And I'm not just thinking about money. What has God given to you that you can use in the service of him? Maybe you're good at craft. How can you use that to serve Jesus and his gospel? Maybe you're a good teacher. How can you use that for the service of Jesus? Maybe you have a nice house. How can you use your house to serve Jesus and his gospel and not just for your own comfort? How can you offer your time in the service of the gospel? How can you use your talents and gifts that you have to serve Jesus and his people? How can you offer your youth, your youthfulness, your energy in the service of Jesus? How can you use your retirement for the service of Jesus? How can you use your marriage or your family in the service of Jesus? Just for a moment, think, what is most valuable to you? What pops into your head when I say that? How can you use it for the service of Jesus? Because whatever you have, 
Whatever you can afford, whether it's a $30,000 bottle of perfume or whether it's two coins, if you offer it in the service of Jesus, you're doing a beautiful thing. You're doing a significant thing. You're part of something very big. It's exciting, isn't it? Let's pray. Father God, the point of this passage is really clear to us now here this morning, but we pray that your spirit might help us to put, us in, put it into action in our lives. Father, we pray that we would willingly, gladly, joyfully give our lives to your service. And we pray that we might have opportunities to do that this week. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he willingly went to his death to die for the elect. And Father, we pray that those of us who've been saved, we would willingly lose our lives in the service of him. And we pray these things for his glory, for his name. Amen.